This is Africa Digest. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we're giving news from an African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg in South Africa on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 meter band in Southern Africa. My name is Spumele Lezondi with Onel Lentinti, Amanda Machaka and Mosibudi Makura. Your top stories. Somalia's Al-Shabaab insurgents threaten civilians to force them to hand over young children for indoctrination and military training. Despite being common in children, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is mostly misunderstood. In economics, YouTube introduces a tougher requirements for video publishers who want to make money from its platform. And in sports, Morocco aims to build on their impressive start to the 2018 African Nations Championship. Onelenzinzi has your news. Thank you, Spoo. A 14-member delegation of parliamentary chief whips representing various parties are currently on a 10-day tour of the British and Ghanaian parliaments. Parliament says the trip will help MPs learn from the UK and Ghanaian counterparts how to hold the executive accountable, among other things. South Africa's parliament spokesperson Moloto Motabo explains the purpose of the trip. During these uh, two trips to uh, Ghana and uh, the United Kingdom, uh, which, uh, whose uh, parliamentary system is modelled alongside the Westminster system of the United Kingdom, uh, they will learn and, uh, from, uh, from their counterparts in those uh, parliaments uh, on matters uh, relating to how to conduct uh, uh, improved oversight over the executive, how is the relationship uh, maintained and nurtured between the presiding officers and uh, the whips of political parties to ensure that parliament um, functions properly. Zimbabwean President Emerson Nangaga is in Maputo, Mozambique to continue his consultations with Southern African leaders. This says he also prepares to represent Zimbabwe at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland and at African Union later this month. Nangaga started in South Africa in December where he met with Sadek Chopas and President Jacob Zuma and ANC President Cyril Ramaphosa. Emerson Nangagwa is not leaving any stone unturned. His roadshows are both a briefing of the changes in Zimbabwe to heads of state in the region and a call to Zimbabweans in the diaspora to return or help rebuild their country. He has already been to South Africa, Angola and Namibia. On Thursday, he will be in dialogue with youth at a town hall titled Road to Davos in Harare. The East African Regional Trade Bloc Intergovernmental Authority on Development, IGAD, has strongly warned South Sudan government and rebels led by Riyad Mashar to observe the ceasefire they signed in December last year in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. The warning comes shortly after the two sides violated the ceasefire 10 times since the last week of December and the first two weeks of this month, James Shimanyula reports. So far, the two warring sides have violated the ceasefire ten times. Now, Ismail Weiss, 
South Sudan's special envoy for Intergovernmental Authority on Development in Short Igad is sounding a strong warning that tough action would be taken on the side that is found to have taken the lead in violating the ceasefire agreement. The ordinary people of South Sudan have borne the full brunt of the ongoing fighting. They had pinned their hopes for peace to prevail on the ceasefire agreement that was signed by representatives of rebel leader Riek Machar and President Salva Kiir. The United Nations says it will investigate the death of 39 Burundian refugees in clashes with soldiers in the Democratic Republic of Congo in September. The soldiers allegedly opened fire on the refugees in eastern South Kivu province after they protested the detention of a small group of Burundians by a Congolese authority. Nigerian Lieutenant General Chika Dibia Isaac Obiako will lead the UN investigation. The special investigation will look into the response of the UN peacekeepers to the violence and provide recommendations. UN peacekeepers sought to intervene to halt the clashes that left 39 dead, including women and children, and 94 wounded. And lastly, the Catalan parliament in Barcelona has elected a left-wing separatist as its speaker at its first meeting since Spain dissolved in it it's in response to a unilateral declaration of independence in October. Pro-independence group remain dominant after regional elections in December. Key to development over the next few weeks will be whether sacked former leader Charles Puigdemont, who's on in self-imposed exile in Brussels, is allowed to present himself for re-election and participate in parliamentary activity from Brussels. The BBC's Gavin Lee has more. He will be proposed in the next two weeks. The Spanish government said if that's the case, they will keep emergency rule. They will complain to the constitutional court and they could suspend parliament. So I think whilst on the streets it's quieter, politically it's starting to heat up again and we could get tangled very soon if they go ahead as expected and nominate Carlos Puigdemont. Channel Africa News, I'm This is Africa Digest. Right, let's start in Somalia where Al-Qaeda linked Al-Shabaab insurgents are increasingly threatening civilians to force them to hand over young children for indoctrination and military training. This is according to the rights organization Human Rights Watch. The group says an aggressive campaign to recruit children has begun in mid-2017 with the jihadists taking reprisals against communities who refuse to cooperate with their demands. The Al-Shabaab militants have been fighting to overthrow successive internationally backed governments in the the Horn of Africa country since 2007 and frequently deploys a car and truck bombs against government and civilian targets. Senior Africa researcher at Human Rights Watch, Leticia Abader, has more. Well, the armed Islamic group Al-Shabaab in Somalia has throughout its existence targeted children and also um, the Islamic schooling system as a way of creating fighters for its ranks. But what we've been seeing over the last year is basically a much more concerted effort 
to get communities which Al-Shabaab is trying to reassert control over or to punish to basically hand over children from an increasingly young age into um, Islamic education institutions which the group has set up and is controlling. Um, and so they've been doing this in many different ways. In some communities they have been going in and bringing elders together and threatening them, sometimes arresting elders and saying, until you hand over X number of children, we will not release you. In other communities, often um, in much poorer communities who might not be as militarily strong, um, they have basically been going in directly into certain schools and picking up children um, and taking them to areas, to towns under their control. Now, but for the time being, this campaign appears to be mainly about bringing these children to the schools which Al-Shabaab controls. But there is often a very fine line between the indoctrination process, the schooling, but also bringing children to actually fight for the group. And so a lot of the communities I spoke to who who are facing these threats are particularly scared that their children are going to be sent to the front lines, including against their own community. Now, how many children have so far been abducted as a result of this? Uh, do we know? Well, the United Nations tracks abductions of children in Somalia, and, and, and each year we're really talking about hundreds of children which, which have been abducted. In the recent drive, um, what we have been seeing is that the, the only way these communities... Now, I was looking at the Bay region in Somalia, which was also one of the regions which was particularly hit by the drought. So these are really fragile communities which you know are, are, are struggling to basically pay al-Shabaab the usual taxation, which they're asked to pay so in some ways kind of handing over their children is seen as as another form of taxation these are very vulnerable communities we've also seen it earlier in the year in central Somalia after the Ethiopian troops pulled out of certain towns Al-Shabaab moved back in and as a way of reasserting control and and punishing these communities for having lived under the Ethiopian forces they basically started pressuring them to, to hand over these children and for the first time um that what we've seen is actually communities are sending especially their boys from ages 9 to 16, 17 into government-controlled towns often on their own because it's the only way they can see um, and they can find to actually protect their children from recruitment. And we've seen hundreds of boys appearing in Baidoa, in the town of Baidoa, in some of the central towns. And the luckier ones are ending up in distant families, so, so with their relatives. But a lot of, especially the poorer boys, are ending up in internally displaced people's camps. Now, you're talking about the three districts that have uh, largely been affected by this Letitia. How come authorities have not been able uh, to nip this in the bud? Now, I mean, the villages and communities um, which were particularly targeted by by the drive that we have documented are very much in rural areas. There are no government forces in those areas. There are no African Union forces in those areas. And this is also why these communities feel quite so desperate and and feel in many ways often with no options but but to comply with the Al-Shabaab orders um, because they have no, no real protection in those areas. I mean, the government has started to conduct activities around preventing uh, 
violent extremism and recruitment of children. But, but what we're really talking here about very basic causes of these problems which are not being tackled. These are very poor, very vulnerable communities which, which have no one really offering them any, any protection. Um, and, and, and so, you know, there is at the moment very little that the government is actually doing. Um, what the government can do, of course, and also international partners can be doing is that when boys are sent into government-controlled towns as, as the only real option for protection, they need to make sure A, these boys are identified and that they are receiving basic access to education. Um, education in government-controlled towns most of it is private. It's much more expensive than what, what is available in, in rural areas. And so the government and international actors need to make sure that these boys um, and, and, and girls in some um, occasions are getting access to school and to, to basic um, education in, in their areas of displacement. Leticia Abader, researcher at Human Rights Watch, talking to Channel Africa's Kumbero Monjarere. Demonstrators have taken to the streets in a number of Tunisian cities this week, calling for the government to scrap new austerity measures, which include a hike in fuel prices and tax on goods. According to state-run TAP news agency, at least one man died in clashes that broke out on Monday between dozens of protesters and security forces in the town of Teburba, near the capital Tunis. Meanwhile, Tunisia's Interior Ministry on Tuesday denied reports that the dead man was run over by a police car and said it was investigating the cause. So far, police have arrested 328 people. To help us analyze the situation, we have Ibrahim Dean, a senior researcher at the South African-based Afro-Middle East Center, and Isandur El Amrani, project director of the Morocco-based North Africa Project International Crisis Group. You need to look at uh, Tunisia as a, as a system, you know, uh, we saw in 2011, you know, as a, as, as, a, as a country which had very high unemployment, also very high graduate impl- unemployment and youth unemployment specifically. Um, you know, uh, at that time, uh, a very dictatorial system, uh, you know, where uh, power was centralized in the presidency and the security apparatus, specifically that of the interior ministry. We then saw, you know, the overthrow of, uh, of Ben Ali. And, you know, what we've, what we've since seen, and I think, you know, we've seen lots of changes, but what hasn't changed much is the economic performances um, or, the, you know, the, the state of the Tunisian economy. So unemployment as a result of, the, you know, the, the shut, slowdowns and shutdowns of the 2011 uprising, but also subsequent protests, uh, you know, the um, subsequent uh, uh, instability has meant that, that the, eco- the economy hasn't grown and this then, you know, led to what we see now, where we saw the government last year try to negotiate an IMF loan. Yeah. The IMF, as we've all seen, in, in especially in, in most countries in Africa, had these conditionalities attached to the loan. And so, you know, at the time, no one really took notice that these conditionalities, such as this, uh, you know, the subsidy reforms, which, uh, which the government has now since, uh, you know, implemented, took, took shape on the 1st of January. And, and, and basically have become the spark for the protest. So it's, the, it's specifically, at the moment, the spark is actually these subsidies or the lack of, you know, there's a removal of subsidies, the hiking of, uh, of that. But also it's in the milieu of a situation where uh, unemployment is more now than it was, you know, in 2011. Uh, you know, tourism has dropped, especially after the Swiss attacks in 2015. Um, and, uh, and and this has meant, and also what what we also see in Tunisia is now a more openness, which means there's more 
uh, you know, um, there's, there's, it's a much, there's more openness to protest and a more willingness to protest. And, and, and this means that uh, this has, you know, all these culminate in what we see now. Isander, uh, when we talk about, you know, any changes that need to come into any country's economic uh, space, young people are always at the center and they definitely take, you know, the lead there. What are the young people in Tunisia uh, saying? What, what are they doing about what's happening? Well, uh, you know, uh, Tunisia is, like much of the Arab world, a place where, where the population is uh, overwhelmingly uh, young, where, you know, often uh, about at least 50% of the population under 30 years old. So, again, the, the, you, have, you have positive stories. You have, there's been a boom in uh, startups in Tunis and elsewhere. Uh, there's been, uh, uh, there, there are some successful Tunisian companies. There, there are things happening in Tunisia. The, the question is for, for more of those people who have very few opportunities. Uh, people who live in areas uh, like Gafsa in the interior of the country, which uh, traditionally uh, is, a, is a mining area, phosphate mining, but some of the mines have closed and there's been for now two decades regular social uh, unrest there from, from, from these uh, uh, mining communities. It uh, might be places like Ben Gerdan on the Libyan border where the economy, the formal economy is practically non-existent and most people work in contraband with Libya, especially fuel smuggling, because fuel is heavily subsidized in Libya. So, and the question I think is, is that many of these people are looking for uh, opportunities which they currently do not have, uh, that you have the, the productive economy and the job creation is not taking place in their areas, it's taking place in, in, in other areas, and they're not seeing a clear vision articulated by the government about what you know, where is the country uh, headed to? What have all the sacrifices of the 2011 revolution and its aftermath uh, been for? And I think this is I mean, this is encapsulated in that slogan of what are we waiting for? Is that uh, it's been uh, over seven years mm. since uh, the regime of Ben Ali was overthrown. Uh, yes, there's a lot more freedom of expression and more political freedom in Tunisia, but w- where is the uh, economic payoff? And I think it's, it's what this generation in particular is, is, is interested in seeing. That is Isandra El Amrani, Projects Director of the Morocco-based North African Project International Crisis Group, and Ibrahim Dean, a senior researcher at the South African-based Afro-Middle East Center. They were speaking to Asanda Matsaunyane. As the South African Reserve Bank Monetary Policy Committee, MPC, meets today and tomorrow to deliberate on interest rates, economist David Wood has warned that decreasing the rates would be dangerous for the country's economy. The central bank's monetary policy stance aims to keep inflation in the target range of 3 to 6% annually. The election of Cyril Ramaphosa as party president at the African National Congress Elective Conference was viewed as market-friendly, lifting investment confidence and hope the rand in the early weeks of January. Low growth is set to continue with persistent unemployment and poverty, which the MPC is set to consider, among other things. Ward explains. I think the best that the Monetary Policy Committee can do is to keep interest rates unchanged at this stage. Of course, there are some positive news. One is that we've seen a substantial fall, or I'm going to see another fall in the petrol price, which will be good for inflation. And we've also seen the rent appreciating quite nicely the last couple of weeks. And we've also seen some positive political development. So these factors 
may be factors that can get the Reserve Bank to cut interest rates. But I think it's a little bit too early. And if I was the Reserve Bank, I would sit on my hands and wait another two months before I make a decision on interest rates. So for now, I expect the Reserve Bank to keep interest rates unchanged. In terms of the uh, projected growth by the World Bank, will that be factored in when the monetary policy makes its decision? Well, the Reserve Bank certainly looks at uh, expected economic growth before they make a decision regarding interest rates. And that is part of the reason why interest rates in South Africa is quite low, because the Reserve Bank is trying to support the South African economy as much as possible. And certainly, with economic growth around about 1%, or maybe just over 1% expected for this year, one should expect the Reserve Bank to keep interest rates at relatively low levels. But cutting interest rates even further, I think, may create a dangerous situation whereby the currency can depreciate suddenly and we could see capital outflows. And I think it's also important to realize that South African economy is not out of the woods yet. There's a very good possibility that we could see another downgrade, which will lead to a weaker currency, and the budget itself is around the corner. So I think the Reserve Bank, because of all these uncertainties, should rather wait at least another two months before they make a final decision regarding interest rates. And the nomination of Cyril Ramaphosa as president of the African National Congress, we have seen how it has viewed positively in the market. Can we bet on it that it will still keep us in a positive with regards to the market and how investments come into the country? Without a doubt, appointment of Cyril Ramaphosa as the new president of the ANC has been seen as a positive development by the financial market. And that's part of the reason why we've seen the rent appreciating quite nicely. But the reality is that the South African economy is in really deep trouble. And only changing the president of the ANC is not going to make that much of a difference. It's going to take many, many years to rectify the damage that has been caused to this economy by the Zuma administration. So certainly, Joe Ramaphosa is a good start, but I'm afraid we shouldn't expect too much from him. He's only one individual, and the problems in South Africa are quite significant. You've spoken about how maybe at this point decreasing interest rates would be a dangerous thing for the country right now, but in the future, maybe towards the end of the year, is that a possibility? Well, without a doubt, there's a possibility that we can see lower rates uh, later this year. If the rand remains where it is, economic growth, even if there's a bit of an acceleration in economic growth, and trust in South Africa remains, or confidence remains in South Africa, and very importantly, if we do not see a downgrade, then certainly, without a doubt, there's a possibility that the Reserve Bank can cut interest rates, and they may even cut it as much as twice during this year. For now, the best approach by the Reserve Bank is rather to do nothing. I think it's important also to understand that South Africa is not an island. South Africa is part of the global economy, and globally interest rates are actually going up. So although we can cut interest rates by global rates go up, we can't do that indefinitely, and eventually we will be forced to follow the international trends as well. In the short term, the next year or so, certainly a cut in interest rates is possible, but I guess by next year and the year thereafter, it will be inevitable that South Africa will have to start following the international trends again. David Wood is the chief economist of the financial consultancy firm Efficient Group on the line from with Tsutongo Beni. Now the International Committee of the Red Cross ICRC warns that humanitarian conditions in the Central African Republic 
is deteriorating with half of the population in need of humanitarian aid. ICRC President Peter Mora just returned from a four-day visit in the Wartan nation where he met with the country's head of state, Faustin Achange Twadera, and other officials for discussions on humanitarian action. Mora has also called for far greater attention and engagement from the international community. For more on this issue, we're now joined by the ICRC's Africa Director, Patricia Danzi. Hello and welcome to Child Africa, Patricia. Hello, good afternoon. Um, let's start by looking at your concerns as the ICRC in the Central African Republic. What are they? Well, the main concern for the people in the Central African Republic, of course, security. Uh, if people are not safe enough to to do their basic activities and if they're afraid to move around, this is one of the basic concerns that we have. And then the Central African Republic is one of the countries with the highest number of internally displaced that exists. Um, <clears throat> 20 people out of 100 are internally displaced, which is a very, very high number. And with displacement comes vulnerability. Uh, I was, however, impressed how many people had still this capacity to look forward and to try to make a living with what they could do uh, to, to, to raise their children, to find some small jobs and, and, and so on. So there's a lot of resilience, but the main, um, the main concern is security. Mm. Um, you're talking about people who are doing what they can to fund small jobs. Um, are those jobs readily available? Are there a lot of those jobs? What's going on? No, there are not a lot of jobs available for, for internally displaced people. What they do with the little assistance um, that they, they can get, um, they can start a garden, they can sell in the market a bit, but again, the movement of goods and the movement of people is restricted. You had in the past in the Central African Republic, you had the different communities living living together, in not in perfect harmony, but more or less harmoniously together, um, the, the pastoralists and um, the, 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 the farmers. So you had these two communities. Now with the war, um, the positions have been more stronger, uh, religion has been manipulated, and so you have a lot of division in the communities. And people live separately, and that is one of the reasons why they don't move easily, not even within small towns. And that is one of the reasons why um, they cannot go on with their life and that they depend a lot on humanitarian assistance still. Um, And uh, is the international community aware of what's happening in the Central African Republic? Yeah, we have a, a UN mission in the Central African Republic. There are resolutions in the UN Security Council on the Central African Republic. But you're right, it's not a context that is in the, in the limelight of attention. Uh, it is in the center of Africa. Uh, it doesn't have any big uh, issues that the, of world concern. So we try to bring, as the International Committee of the Red Cross, this context to the attention of the international community because Central Africans, they deserve this attention. There have um, also been some progress, um, but we are like in a submarine. We are still underwater and the progress is not so much seen and we need to get to the level of the surface um, that the progress can be seen and that the people can benefit from the, the small progress that, um, that is done. 
but uh, efforts are, are, are there. But now the benefits, they, they, they need to be seen for the people. Mm. Um, and with the meeting that um, happened with President Wadera, what, what did he say there? We had a meeting with the president yesterday, and he, uh, of course, asked for, for continued support from the international community and also from the humanitarians. And he asked also that humanitarian issues and development issues be addressed at the same time, because in some parts of the country, you have um, still fighting going on, newly displaced arriving. Uh, so the humanitarian response, the emergency response is needed. And in other places, uh, there is a bit more stability and the, the state uh, installations and the state infrastructure is getting uh, there slowly. So there, of course, uh, we are looking more into a long-term sustainable plan, uh, but there is still a lot, a lot, a lot that needs to be done outside of Bangui. And the authority try to do exactly that, to bring the state um, to the, the different towns outside, but what also is needed is to increase the security, a strong police force, if it's not yet there, and anything that can make the people feel safe. Um, and in terms of humanitarian aid, what is now needed? So as I said, the two things are needed. Emergency aid for the people that are displaced still, so you talk about uh, safe drinking water, uh, hygienic kits, um, food and non-food items. That's one part for the people that are freshly displaced. And for the other part, um, you also have the resident population that hosts the, the displaced. So we also distribute seeds and tools. We vaccinate um, cattle that the, the, the people don't lose their assets. There is um, a lot of still substitution done in the in the health system um, to provide basic health care in the different centers and to provide uh, surgical interventions for the ones that are injured uh, due to the fighting that is still going on. All right, sure. Thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. That is Patricia Danzi, Africa Director of the International Com- Committee of the Red Cross. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Right, you still listen to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Anna Lenzinti has your news headlines.
EGAD warns South Sudan government and rebels led by Rick Mashaw to observe the ceasefire they signed in December last year. A 14-member delegation of parliamentary chief whips representing various parties are currently on a 10-day tour of the British and Ghanaian parliaments and the United Nations to investigate the deaths of 39 Burundian refugees in clashes with soldiers in the Democratic Republic of Congo in September. Channel Africa News, I am Onelinsinsi. Thank you very much, Onel, and thank you very much for staying with the program with Ms. Pumelele Zondi. Now, you can uh, send us emails. We're on info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also follow us on Twitter on Channel Africa One. It is Channel Africa One on Twitter. Now, South Africa's main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, has joined in the chorus of criticism towards the country's education ministry for failing to ensure that thousands of pupils are admitted into school on time. The economic freedom fighters earlier this morning gathered at the war school overfall in the small town of Ferienegeng in the Gauteng province where parents want to enroll their children despite this week's high court ruling which sets aside the provincial education department's bid to force Afrikaans war school overfall to admit English speaking pupils. The department had taken the school to court in a bid to force it to admit 55 pupils the DA's Shadow Deputy Minister of Basic Education, Nomsa Machesi, joins us on the line to talk more about this. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa. Hello, hi. Um, Nomsa, the uh, Department of Education in Gauteng and MEC Banyazili Sufi have assured parents that their children will get placement. Um, what do you have to say so that you agree with that? Uh, you know what, it's actually uh, a challenge that uh, provinces like uh, Western Cape and Gauteng experience year after year, whereby uh, there's a shortage of, uh, of schools, a shortage of classrooms for learners, and, and we see this uh, being something that uh, uh, happens uh, continuously. And we as parliament, uh, as a committee, we have many a times like, uh, reiterated the fact that the department has to take into consideration the fact that there's high immigration uh, migration of, of um, within the country of people that are moving from uh, less affluent provinces to, to more uh, provinces that uh, you know they have promises uh, to 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 place. Obviously, that they think that they are going to get into better schools and you know finding work. So it is constantly something that we have to face as, as South Africans. And the Department of um, Basic Education, it has to understand that we need to be able to to have some contingency plan on uh, on preparing ourselves for learners that are coming from those provinces. Because as you know, like for instance, provinces like Limpopo and Eastern Cape, you know, they are allocated budgets to, to build schools. But then some of them, they don't. You know, they, they, there's a program, which is the ICD program, that allocates uh, specifically for schools to be built. And we found that, like, for instance, the Eastern Cape, money had to be returned to, to National Treasury because they didn't build the schools. So there's an influx of, of learners uh, from uh, those uh, provinces uh, that are not economically viable, unfortunately, going to, you know, those provinces that are doing well. 
So it is difficult, you know. Uh, they, for instance, the Western Cape, they're trying very hard to make sure that they, they are placing, they had a, a, almost 19,000 learners that had needed to be placed, and they've now placed in about 11, uh, they actually have 11,000 uh, learners that are outstanding. So it's a challenge throughout the country. It's, uh, it's, it's something that we have to preempt. The, the Department of Basic Education, they have to acknowledge and have, for, for instance, a more or less, uh, you know, expectancy to say, especially when it comes to national treasury in terms of allocation of funds, to say you have to uh, to make a contingency plan for those learners that are coming from uh, those provinces. And um, whose job is it to place those students? Is it um, national, the National Department of Education, or is it the provinces themselves? You know, uh, as I'm saying, that you know, it has to be a responsibility of both national and province. The province can can do so little because uh, they have an allocation; they're given an allocation uh, based on um, of on funding that was uh, that was designed uh, about ten years ago. So there isn't enough. That hasn't been uh, revised. The funding model hasn't been revised, and the fact that it hasn't been revised, it makes it very difficult for any province for that matter, to be able to say, you know, there are learners that are coming in, can we please do, um, maybe allocate, um, have some funding that is allocated by the National Treasury to allow us to be able to accommodate these learners. For instance, today, I was in KZN, uh, to, I, I went to visit a school that is called the Isisulu uh, 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 Secondary School in KZN. And what we found out there is that, for instance, they used to have 100 learners uh, and they are, are allocated, they, were, they had actually six classrooms. So they were able to perform well to get 95% uh, pass rate in the matric. And now, uh, last year, they actually dropped to 26%, primarily because they had 100 learners in 2015, and now they are sitting with uh, 400 learners. So the number has quadrupled. So there, there, there is a need for us to really reevaluate and look at the budget and say, what is it, especially when it comes to infrastructure, for those learners that uh, come from very much uh, impoverished areas, and find ways to say, if we don't have a school that has enough classes, can you please just send in a mobile classroom, have teachers say, so that in the meanwhile, whilst you know we're looking at uh, new infrastructure, there is actually a contingency plan to make sure that these learners that come from rural areas, that come from other provinces, uh, they are actually accommodated. But the number is really constant. If you go through different years, uh, um, previous years, you find that the number is constant. So uh, it should be like uh, something that they have to take into consideration to say more or less we have about 5% of, uh, of a population moving from Eastern Cape going to the Western Cape, 10% going from, from, uh, from, from Limpopo, getting to Gauteng. So can you plan for that before we get to a, a, a sancha whereby we are, we are now faced with learners mm. not having a place to, to go to? It's very embarrassing and very mm. disappointing that this government is not able to, to see that this is a need that needs to be handled and tackled. And it is through budgeting that we can actually be able to resolve this issue. Mm. Um, Namsa, you say um, the school that you visited in KZN has six classrooms, you say? Yes, it's got six classrooms. And 400 it's students. 
uh, and 400 learners. But that, that, that school, if you think about six, six classrooms, they can only accommodate 100 learners. But now all of a sudden the principal is sitting there with 400 learners. But they are doing uh, uh, grade 8, 9, 10, uh, up to grade 12. So now uh, she cannot turn those learners away. Because uh-huh. uh, according to your policy, you have to accommodate all learners that come from uh, one area. So you have one high school from one area. So you have to be able to, to accommodate all those learners. Were you, How do you do that uh, if you don't have uh, proper infrastructure to actually to accommodate those learners? Mm. Um, so I would assume that the case is different there. It's not like the case of the Western Cape and Gauteng, where pupils come from different provinces um, to the province. Um, what led to that um, th- uh, increase of 300 pupils in just one year? Um, you know, now you can say that you know there's a population growth. People are, you know, uh, you know, are living longer. I guess so. We are having more children. You know, the population is not the same as it used to be. So I think uh, that actually could be the cause of the fact that in one uh, area, in one district, you have more people coming in and, you know, having uh, learners that are coming from um, from that area. So it has, I don't know, it could be a couple of factors, but uh, I didn't really interrogate, you know, to find out why the number has quadrupled. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, it is happening. And, uh, and, and and there's nothing that we can do. We need to to be able to accommodate these learners. Mm. Um, and uh, moving out of the uh, of the uh, students moving uh, switching provinces, how would you then say the government at national level can plan for that situation where um, a school has 100 learners and then all of a sudden the following year there are 300 more learners? Um, how do you plan for that situation? As you're saying that the government should plan better. Yeah, you know the the, the issue of uh, of what is in KZN is not uh, it was not just overnight. It has been gradual. Uh, for instance, you know there was in 2015 that they had uh, 100 learners, and it has grown. Is it Cape Town? Oh, sorry. Uh, Nomsa, we are still on air. Nomsa. Yes. Uh, we are still yeah, live on air, Nomsa. So it's not it's not something that happened overnight. It's very much gradual. So you have, they had, in 2015, they had 100 learners, and now this year, in 2017, they're sitting with 400 learners. So it is quite a challenge for them to, to be able to say, you know, what do we do with that? Yes, I understand to say that uh, the number is quadrupled. But then uh, we know that it's happening throughout the country. Um, so, the, you know what, I'm actually running out All right, um, of time for my we- all right, sure. Um, we will let you go over there. That is uh, the Democratic Alliance's Nomsa Machesi, as she says that she is at the airport on her way to Cape Town from Guazulu Natal. And in the end there, you heard that um, um, they were saying that her flight to Cape Town has now is about to leave and she has to go. But she is pretty much saying that she is worried that the government doesn't seem to be planning better for population growth in the country.
um, and the fact that she visited a school that had a um, a number of pupils growing by 300 pupils quadrupling in just one year and in that one year it seems like um, the school had a 90 something percent um, in one year and the following year when it had 300 more pupils there was a 26 percent uh, pass rate to dropping uh, pretty much by about 60 percent uh, by 60 um, percent to them um, it is now let's take a break and we'll come back with your economics news after the break This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu hivi sasa najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre de soleil. Kia Makande Mbalelwa Kina Miriam Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Sochitika Mu África. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalunya Nzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We are Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It is now time for economics. Here's Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Spomelele. Good evening. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has urged foreign governments to encourage their companies to increase foreign direct investment in the country. The president's call comes amidst sluggish economic growth and diminishing investment confidence. With the economic growth at below 2%, the country has been experiencing hardship in meeting its targets to provide job opportunities, which are key towards reducing the high unemployment and poverty rates. The ruling ANC, which has just elected Cyril Ramaphosa to succeed Zuma as the party leader, has vowed to intensify measures to draw foreign investors. Addressing a group of foreign envoys who have just been accredited to South Africa at the presidential guest house in Pretoria, Zuma reiterated government's call for increased investment and trade. This great country of Nelson Mandela is stable and is open to foreign investment. Our country is therefore alive with a variety of opportunities that I would urge you to explore and leverage 
for mutual benefit. I can assure you that we will have sufficient time to interact with you during your tour of duty. South Africa's Companies Registry Office says it is pursuing criminal complaints against global software giant SAP, auditing firm KPMG and consultancy firm McKinsey on suspicion that business they conducted with the Guptas contravened the Companies Act. The Companies and Intellectual Property Commission, CIPC, says the complaints were submitted to police in November and December last year. The Guptas have strong links with President Jacob Zuma. The African Development Bank has launched the 2018 edition of its yearly flagship report, the African Economic Outlook, at its headquarters in Abidjan. As a leading African institution, the bank is the first to provide headline numbers of Africa's macroeconomic performance and outlook. The African Economic Outlook bridges a critical knowledge gap on the diverse socioeconomic realities of African economies through regular, rigorous and comparative analysis. It provides a short to medium-term focus on the evolution of key macroeconomic indicators for all 54 regional member countries. The January release will provide a rigorous and comprehensive analysis of the state of African economy, country profiles with key recent developments and prospects for each country. Nigeria expects to raise 700 million U.S. dollars from international sources as part of a $3.5 billion in borrowing earmarked in the 2017 spending plan, according to the Debt Management Office DMO. The DMO gave no details of which sources the government could tap, but Director General Patience Onia said in October the country is talking to the World Bank about concessionary loans. And YouTube is introducing tougher requirements for video publishers who want to make money from its platform. In addition, says staff will manually review all clips before they are added to a premium service that pairs big brand advertisers with popular content. The moves follow a series of advertiser boycotts and a controversial vlog that featured an apparent suicide victim. YouTube says video clips will no longer have adverts attached unless publishers have at least 1,000 subscribers and more than 4,000 hours of their content viewed by others within the past 12 months. YouTube says this represents a higher standard than the previous requirement of 10,000 lifetime views, which was introduced nine months ago. In your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 12.27 to the South African rent, at 9.61 to the Botswana Pula, and at 9.76 to the Zambian Kwacha. It's at 72 pence to the British pound and 81 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,335 and platinum at $1,000 per ounce. And the price of Brent crude oil is at $68.95 a barrel. That's your latest business news.
Good evening, sports fans. I am Osibu Dimakura with the latest sports news at the Sawam. Starting off with football news, Morocco will be aiming to build on an impressive start to the 2018 African Nations Championship on home soil with a victory over Guinea in a Group A showdown at the Stadia Mohamed V in Casablanca tonight with kickoff set for um, 6.30 p.m. Central African time. Now, the Atlas Lions got their campaign off to a perfect start with a 4-0 thumping of Mauritania at the very same venue this past weekend. In another match, Mauritania Tenya will be desperate to get their campaign up and running when they lock horns with Sudan at 9.30 p.m. Central African time. Now, having stood firm for most of their clash against the host Morocco in the opening game of this year's tournament, the West African nation would ultimately suffer a disappointing 4-0 defeat at the very same venue this past weekend. On to cricket news, Lungingidi start for the Proteus when he helped South Africa to a 135-run victory against India at Supersport Park in Pretoria earlier today. Ngidi making his test debut at Supersport Park returned figures of 6 for 39 runs in India's second innings at his home ground. Now the 30, um, 21-year-old uh, six wickets in India's second knock is the 7th best by a South African on debut as well as the 27th best of all time. He was also named man of the match for his efforts. At the moment it hasn't really sunk in but um, I'm very chuffed with my performance and I'm just very happy at the moment. It's been a, a quick turnaround for me. I mean there's been some good form in terms of franchise cricket bowling so you know when I got the call up I felt like I was in good nick so I just came out here um, to try pretty much showcase what I can do and um, lucky enough it was on my home ground. The, the support was great and it was just a great moment. Now, today's result means South Africa win the Freedom Test Series with one match still to go and Captain Favre Duplessis is a happy man. That sounds really good. Obviously, over the last five days, it took a lot of hard work. This was um, one of the harder test matches in terms of you had to put a lot in. Bowling was tough, batting was tough. But over the five days, I thought we were on top pretty much most of the time. And then to wrap it up today like the way we did, and I thought especially in the field we were amazing. So the boys were keen to, to wrap it up pretty quickly. At the same time, Indian captain Virat Kohli took time to reflect on a disappointing team performance. We thought the wicket was really flat to play. You know, it was uh, quite surprising. Um, we, when we went in, I saw the pitch, you know, uh, I told the guys it looks very different from what we saw before toss. And then, um, you know, we thought we have our best chance to put up some runs on the board. Um, especially after you know the way um, South Africa lost wickets in the first innings, I thought we gained momentum from that, and uh, we should have capitalised. You know, we were in a position to get the lead also at one stage. You know, if we uh, could have had a, a big partnership, but we failed to convert that again. And um, yeah, that's something that um, you know we have let ourselves down with from the first game uh, into the second game as well. The bowlers again have have stuck to their uh, guns, and you know they've done the job for us. But it's the batsmen uh, who's, who've let the team down again, and uh, that's why we. Well, the third and final test match takes place at the Wanderers Stadium in Johannesburg on the 24th of January. And finally, Athletic South Africa have congratulated South Africans' golden goal, Kasta Semenya, who has been nominated for the Laureus World Sportswoman of the Year Award to be held in Monaco on the 27th of February. Semenya, a three-time 800-meter world champion, is among a tough competition for the top prize, which includes Wimbledon champion Gabi Muguruza, as well as an all-American quartet of Serena Williams, 16 times. 
two-time World Athletics Championship medalist Alison Felix, overall World Cup um, champion skier Michaela Schifrin, as well as 19-year-old swimming sensation Caddy Lekere. While Athletics South Africa President Alex Kosana says the association is proud of Simeya and has also wished her well ahead of the winner announcement. While the Zaya Sports News at the Sawa stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. Well, let's recap our top stories. So Somalia's Al-Shabaab insurgents threaten civilians to force them to hand over young children for indoctrination and military training. Despite being common in children, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is mostly misunderstood. And that wraps up Africa Digest for today. For myself, as Pumelele Zondi producer, Luanda Mom, and the rest of the team, thank you very much for joining us. You can send us emails in for a channel africa.co.za on Twitter, it's channel Africa One, and on SMS, plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. Bye bye.